0: baby came a break break a break a baby came a break it a break down break a break a break a break down break 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 break
1: break 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 they will.
0: Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So today's exchange is with artwork and as I said in the written introduction to this interview we've never heard a story quite like his. Arthur Smith has been making music since back in 1989, but the sheer range of different hats he's worn during his career has meant he's never really got the recognition he deserves. Although in speaking with him it felt like I was more concerned about this fact than he was. Most recently Smith has been known for Magnetic Man, his crossover dubstep group with Scream and Benga, while over the last couple of years he's begun to establish himself as a solo artist through his party series Arts House. But as you'll hear during our conversation, these projects represent just the tip of a very large iceberg. Various people have been urging us to speak with Smith for an exchange on account of his sense of humor and knack for a story. And when he stopped by our London office recently, he didn't disappoint. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with artwork is up next. So came a break it down, down. Break it down, down. So down, down. Break it
2: down. down. So a... Break
1: it down.
0: Break it down. Say
1: well.
0: So a few people had approached me and said that we should definitely get you on the exchange. Right. They were telling me that you would have loads of stories, you're a really fun guy and yeah, certainly something I could see from myself from your internet presence. So I guess I was just wondering firstly, did you kind of grow up in a household where having a laugh was sort of the done thing?
2: Yeah, that's that's all it was. Me and my brother and, and mum and dad, but my dad is a big practical joker, kind of never taking anything too seriously, do you know what I mean? So it was, I, I grew up around that, you know. And it's kind of never left you? Yeah, you're, you're never, well, I kind of I've left sort of school and went into Apple Records, so which is just like continuing in, like being in school, but without the lessons. It was just like lunchtime for, for like 10 years. <laughs> I think it was just constant...
0: People, you know, taking the piss out of each other and and having fun, do you know what I mean? So. You've kind of said on the flip side of this that you feel like as an artist, having this public persona, maybe like even limits your options somehow or people think you're not taking your music seriously.
2: It's weird. It's kind of like way back when I was doing the techno stuff with the, the grain records. At the time, all the people that I was sort of like, you know, the people that I was looking up to, you know, they were all incredibly serious. You would never have Jeff Mills, you know, crack a joke or anything like that. It wouldn't happen. And I think, sort of, growing up, it was weird for me because I saw these people and I saw other peers of mine making music and being incredibly serious and taking photographs with stony faces and just putting out this music, like this incredibly serious stuff, you know, and you just, none of their personality came through on the music, which was weird for me because I thought my close friends, if I would have put out a record and stood there, you know, black and white, staring at a wall or whatever, and they would have just been like, what are you doing? You know, they would have never, I would have never lived it down. So I, That's why I put the sort of like the phone calls and stuff on the record and things like that. But it did catch people out because they they get this record and it's got music that they like on it. But then it's got this weird bit at the end that's someone taking the piss or, or, you know, it's a a prank call or something like that. That was just a little bit of me in there to sort of say, look, I'm not taking it that seriously. But it is weird. It's sort of people don't seem to take you as seriously as the other guy who's staring at a wall, you know what I mean?
0: So you would have been putting these records out in a time when there wasn't really internet or wasn't uh, in widespread use. So what you're kind of trying to do in this is inject just a little bit of your like day-to-day personality into the record however subtly
2: it was weird i mean i did do it a bit because i actually called all the records untitled and i called all the tracks untitled as well because i was like look it doesn't matter you know it's like i'm not going to call it journey into the dark light or whatever you know all these sort of things i was just like look it's just a track it's just a track it's called untitled blah, blah blah that's caused me absolute murders over the years because anyone that wants to license it has got untitled Off of the Untitled record, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's been a nightmare, but, and that was me being a silly young sod.
0: I mean, did you ever end up butting heads with any of your techno peers in sort of a personality clash style? No,
2: not at all. Not at all. Absolutely not at all. And, And they just did their thing. But I mean, it was just the fact that I think I was making the music, but I was also always, I've always been never taken anything too seriously. I just, I tend to laugh a lot. <laughs> so I think if I'd have done a really serious sort of techno record and not put anything on there and taken the photographs and done all the press releases about you know how serious it was, they would have just been like, shut up. You know what I mean? What are you? I would not have lived it down. So it was just, I was, I was doing what I was doing.
0: So sort of connected to this, there's very much the line of thinking in dance music or the release appears to be that people should stick to a sound. Yeah. Right. There's this is idea of purity where, you know, you are a techno artist and therefore you will make techno now and you will make techno in the future. Yeah. It's something you've never done no. in your career. You've done a multitude of different things. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is how much of you had to think about what I just said, like over your 20 year plus career? I've always just loved music. And I love all
2: types of music. I mean, it was Duke Allenton that said there was only two types of music, it's good and bad. And there really is. You can listen to country and western and, okay, there's a lot of bad, <laughs> but there's also some incredibly good stuff. And it's just, it doesn't matter what kind of genre it is, if you're in a mood, a certain mood, and you get it right, and someone plays you a track from a genre you may not even know or whatever, if it's really, really good... It's great music. It doesn't matter. You don't have to sort of... uh,
0: You're saying this, but you've existed in the scene where it kind of does matter to some people. It does matter to some people,
2: but not to me. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I don't care. Do you know what I mean? It's just... And I like to hear new stuff or try new stuff. And... Like, my hero growing up was sort of like, you know, Steve Bicknell and Jeff Mills and stuff like that. And if you if Jeff Mills had brought out a garage record, I probably would have gone, what the hell is this? Do you know what I mean? So, what's he doing? So, but I was doing that. So, uh, it, uh, yeah, it is a bit complicated.
0: I guess what I'm asking is, like, did you ever lose any sleep over these sorts of things? No. Were you thinking like, oh, God, like, am I, you know, am I confusing people? No, I didn't care.
2: Possibly if you looked at it as a career kind of thing then I probably was damaging myself if I'd have stuck to one thing and done it very seriously and, and blah 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 and, and but I don't see music as a career it's not a career it's not like working in a bank it should be doing what you love and, and having fun do you know what I mean? for me I just want to have fun and, and keep interested and if I want to make one type of music one day and one type of music another day
0: then I'm going to do that you know yeah so um, presumably no regrets over like you know certain shifts in what you were doing. No, no, no. That, I've, I've always, I've, I've always had fun. Let's take things back to the beginning. Did you grow up in South London? Yep. Whereabouts? Croydon. Tell us about Croydon.
2: Croydon, growing up, was a bit grey. It was a sort of a concrete shopping centre with houses around it, and I grew up there. And it was the worst place in the world, really. It was, it was pretty, pretty dire. There's not a lot going on there.
0: But would, would most people say that about their hometown, do you think? It's, do you think it's, it was particularly shithole. It's a shithole.
2: Yeah. It was an absolute shithole. And then Apple Records started and it was in a fruit market that I used to go to as a kid. I was dragged along the fruit market buying fruit and veg with my mum and then this record shop opened up. It was opened by um, John Kennedy and a couple of other people and they were selling techno and sort of progressive house and stuff like that which was you know but they had a drum and bass floor and a friend of mine got a job in the drum and bass floor so he was selling stuff in there and I would be hanging out in there constantly that's all I did I was just in there all the time ever since I was I was really young when I first got my first sampler because when growing up I I heard house music on a radio in my bedroom and I heard this It was Nick Kershaw that had a world radio show, and I used to listen to it at night at 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, and it was I used to play African record, and then he'd play a record from from South America, and then he'd play, and then he said, there's this new music from Chicago, they're calling it house music, and I freaked out. Like, what is that? I have to, like, what is it? Recorded it, played it back over and over and over and over again, and sort of, at that sort of time, found My Price Records in Croydon, run by Jazzy M, and I used to go in there and buy these very, very early house records.
0: So we are talking like 87, 88 sort of time at this point?
2: Before we go on any further with this interview, I've got to tell you that I've completely fried my brain over the years, and I have no idea of any dates. All my friends tell me as well that I say the other day, this could be seven years ago, right? <laughs> So, unfortunately, chronologically for the listener, you've, you haven't got a chance. I can tell you I'm, roughly. I'm going gonna,
0: I'm gonna to guess. Yeah. 8, okay. Eighty-seven. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. like around that time. Okay. Okay.
2: So I was in there buying those records, and I wanted to. I thought, hang on, that doesn't. And I asked people about it. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like a drum machine and a sampler. There's not a lot to it. And I was like, well, I have to. I I need to find out what this is. You know. So I got myself a seven oh seven, and that was the drum machine. And I was like. Well, I'm halfway there. I can make a drum beat, you know. And then I needed to know what a sampler was. I understood the idea. And my dad said, look, I know people that have got studios. You can go in there. Obviously, they've got it. And I remember my dad phoning his friend up who had uh, a studio, and he was part of Proco Harum, this guy. And he said, yeah, your son can come into the studio. And I remember going there and saying, have you got a sampler? And he said, what is that? I said, well, it's... You take a sound, and you, you can play it again and again and again. And he said, well we can make a tape loop. We can make record a sound and cut the tape and make a loop. And I was like, yeah, a loop, but how does that go in over and over again? And he went, well, you can't, you've got to press the play button. So there, I was up against that sort of wall and there's no internet. So you have to go and find other people to say, what is a sampler, you know what I mean? Well, it, how do we get this? And eventually bought a, a Roland W30, which is like a, a seven second sampling, changed my life and that was it. So that was when John from Big Apple said, you want the room upstairs? Make a studio, and uh, I had that little keyboard and uh, an Atari at the time, and that was the studio. <laughs> I had a studio, which is just one keyboard and a and a desk. I mean, are you still a
0: uh, youngster at this point in the story?
2: I'm still a youngster now, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, I was I was really young. I don't know how old I was. Probably about nineteen, twenty, or something like that. Or so I had the studio upstairs, and I was making drum and bass stuff at the time because of the drum and bass floor but then I was listening to things from downstairs and listening to the techno records and thinking whoa this is like you know going back to the original house stuff that I loved you know years before I never sort of lost it lost listening to that stuff but I drifted into the drum and bass thing because it sounded exciting you know and it was like this new sound it was great you know but then listening to this stuff again I started to drift off and make that again, make sort of techno stuff.
0: Were you going out listening to both techno and drum and bass around that time?
2: Well, it's weird, I was I was engineering for people making drum and bass records up in the, the studio. And um, John Kennedy's friend was Steve Bicknell who was running Lost. And John said, listen, uh, can you give Steve a hand? He runs this nightclub, you know, it's in a warehouse, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, sounds blinding to go along. So I went along, met Steve had to spend a day putting up camo in a railway arch that stunk and and pure dirt, you know, getting grimy. And then at the end, he was like, hang about, you know, come and see what it is. And Jeff Mills turned up, never seen him before, didn't know who the guy was really, only listening to a couple of records and everyone was really super excited. And I remember standing in that room and hearing this, super loud sound, bass and everything like that. And I remember standing there, walking in, and standing, watching all the people, and feeling the excitement and the tension. And then some hi-hats came in. Fucking place went mental. And uh, it was like, that's it. This is it. This is what I'm doing now.
0: Did it take you long to uh, crack the code, as it were? I, I mean, never, cracked,
2: get... I never did crack the code. Uh, no, I know.
0: Come on, you had. I mean, the grain records, but yeah, you know, yeah, still yeah. people are into into those.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, because of the that sort of world of the garage music at the time and all stuff like that. I was making techno records, but I was putting vocals in them. I was putting garage vocals into the techno records, which was freaking people out as well. But then I, I turned. I was making these records and putting them out, and they weren't really, you know didn't have internet so you don't know what the reaction is you put the record out and it's six months before you know how many you sold or, or whatever you know so you don't know what's happening to it and I remember turning up and seeing Derek May play and he played one of my records and you just think fuck it's actually working do you know what I mean so it, it, you don't have the instant thing that people do now
0: yeah it's not like uh, measurable and no, no, you no, know no. trackable like, no.
2: instantly but then when you see Derek May play one of your records you're suddenly like oh shit
0: <laughs> so, um, the period of time, I'm not going to press you on dates, but the period of time over which we're talking, because um, I'd already started uh, making music like 89 or something yeah. like that, for example. And then Graeme was kind of the first successful project you had. Would that be accurate to I say? I wouldn't have said
2: successful. Okay. I, th- I think we only sold like a thousand copies of it or something like that. And, and that was in a time when people were selling a lot, you know. Sure, sure. A, a, a good A good Detroit techno record would sell. 20,000 or something like that, okay. you know, so it wasn't a hit, you know.
0: Yeah, 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 I but see. I was, but but I, was, I guess it was notable, you had the tracks included on the Richie Horton CD, yeah, the Dex yeah. FX 909. I mean, were you, like, getting gigs off the back of the grain music?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was. A, a lot in Spain, that sort of scene was doing well in Spain at that time, but not really in England. Hmm. It was, It was kind of strange, because I was still really, really young. I always thought, it's not good enough. Do you know what I mean? I always, and I always have done, I've always thought this music isn't good enough. Do you know what I mean? It's a weird thing. It's sort of, I know I, I never made the records and people would push me, like Alex Knight from Fat Cat would push me and push me and push me and, push me and say, I'm putting this out now. And I went, like, no, 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 no. It's not finished. It's not, he's like, forget it. It's done, we're putting it out. And then he put it out and it's
0: out of your hands. Sure, sure. I mean, was that a particular anxiety you were feeling working in techno, or does that just go like across the board? no,
2: no, no, totally. Even to to this day, I mean, I'll sit down, try and make a record today, and I'll go in the studio, start something, go around for sort of six hours, and then I'll I'll suddenly find this thing, and it will go click, and you go, that's it. Smashed it. And you're jumping around the studio, same as you were when you were 19 years old, and it's amazing. It's the best thing ever. Work on it for two hours, and... You go round and round and round, and then you think, this is shit. (laughs) So you turn it off, right? Put it in a folder, leave it, and carry on. Make something else, you do that four or five times. Maybe a month later you go back and think, what is this folder? Go in there, click on it, open it up, and you go, fucking hell, this is really good. This is really good. Two hours later, this is shit. (laughs) So It's it's very rare for me to actually finish anything, and it takes people like Jack Master to say no, that's done i'm having that i'm I'm already playing it and then he will give it to someone else and there's like three people playing it and, and then you think oh fuck, it's gone now you know
0: i mean is it usually another person who snaps you out of that loop that you're creating in yeah, your mind yeah. if i was left okay. on my
2: own i would never ever ever finish a record or put it out but people take things off me and i'll say oh, i've got a demo i'll play it to jack and say what do you think about this next thing he's playing it and he's giving it to two other people you know to play And people are saying, when's this record out? When's this record out? I'm like, it's a demo. I haven't finished it. And they're like, well, it's too late now. It's out, you know.
0: Thinking about the techno records you did release, was there a particular style that you found yourself kind of gravitating towards? Like, I mean, if I'm listening back to those records now and maybe hearing an influence of, you know, the mills and yeah. the hoods of this world, yeah. like were those people who were kind of uh, yeah. key for you, would you say?
2: Yeah, they really were, and it's and more actually, Steve Bicknell. I think he's probably like for me the most underrated artist in the UK. If you go back and look at his catalogue and listen to those tracks, they were works of art. They are so out there and so like brave and they weren't there to fit in or be like the other people's records where mine possibly were a bit because I was quite young. I wanted to be, to fit in and you know, blah, 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 but listen to his stuff.
0: How were his records received at the time?
2: By us, amazing. (laughs) I think whenever people talk about techno, and sometimes you say yeah but what about Steve Bicknell and people are like sorry and you're like not everyone I mean, everyone that we know knows him but some of the younger generations like don't know who he is and how important it was he was the guy that bought Jeff Mills Richie Horton and like all the the, uh, DJ Funk and all right through Derek May everyone he bought them to London put on a huge warehouse party for 2000 people with a massive sound system and two lights that was it that was it and it's just like him and Cherie did the parties together. Mm. But as an artist, because he was pushing those people forward, he would do the warm up set. And then it would be all
0: about Jeff Mills or all about, you know, Richie Horton. Sure, sure, sure. So maybe if he was an outside artist kind of like gunning to play in The Lost Fold, he might have got more recognition. Yeah, because rather being a selfless person putting it on. And he would,
2: I mean, we're not talking about a promoter that sits in in an office and turns up 10 minutes before and the decks are in the wrong place. He was there with me from eight o'clock in the morning, climbing up ladders, putting up drapes, building and checking everything like the decks going up underneath the stage with lumps of two before to straighten it up because you knew that Derek May would jump about a bit testing everything so that it was absolutely perfect
0: it was a work of art and it was uh, yeah underrated so you said before you were making techno and garage simultaneously would that be accurate
2: I don't know yeah the record shop at one point was selling techno and I was making it and buying it. But then there was Garage in there as well. And I was interested in it. I really, really liked it. So I started to make those records. And I was making them with Danny Harrison, who was um, was Nash and he was 187. So we were doing those together and we were making so many of them that we had to make up like different names every week for the next release because we had sometimes almost a whole wall of the record shop was stuffed by us. So we had to keep inventing these pseudonyms For and they some of them would only last for two or three releases and then we just get bored of it and make another one. But
0: (laughs) I mean, do you think there's anyone out there who uh, like is fully aware of the full scope of the work you were doing at the time? Probably just the people around us in the shop. Yeah, sure, sure.
2: Uh, A couple of people come up to me. I mean, the weirdest thing is everyone completely forgotten about grain because it was pre-internet. I think it was sort of like it's just one of those things that very very few people know even about grain or what it is, let alone know it was me. And I got a, a phone call a year ago, hey, do you wanna play at Bergheim? And I'm like, oh yes, yeah, great, where, whereabouts? But I thinking it'd be panoramas, artwork or something like that. I said, no, 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 we want you to play downstairs as, as grain. So it was like, it's, it's Ben Clock and you for the night. And I was like, oh shit, you know what I mean? So I went and did it, and the guy from the club comes up to you in the end, and I was like, he said, oh, great set really good he said I, I loved your your old records and i'm like oh oh you know the grain stuff and he went no 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 i, I love the D stuff i love the garage stuff." <laughs> I'm like, wow you know what i mean
0: what was going on at that in that period of time i mean you were talking about covering an entire wall with the records that you guys had produced like were you just feeling like impossibly inspired at that time like you know what was going on in the studio
2: it was just fun it was real, real fun. We had uh, friends of ours who ran a printing distribution company that were just desperate for, you know, record shops were kicking, you know what I mean? You could put a record out, and he'd say two weeks later, we've sold 5,000, you know what I mean? Here's your money, you know? And and great fun making these records. A lot of the time we were nicking vocals of, of R&B stuff, doing a garage track underneath it, and then just pressing them up, and, and okay. it would, it would yeah, go yeah. Out on the wall. And it was just so fun and danny's got a huge like collection of r&b stuff he's, he's he knew all about the um he could tell you what vocals from where blah 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 and he had been collecting that sort of stuff hip-hop and r&b for years so he's got all the 12s that have got the acapella on the on the third track on the other side so he'd be like he'd come in on monday and go i've got another one <laughs> and we just sit down and like make the beat underneath it and julian jonah was was uh, with us as well obviously and so the three of us would make these records, and then you know,
0: I don't know, just put them, put them out as quick as we could. You know, people look back very fondly on the, you know, these halcyon kind of garage days, like late nineties, early two thousands. I'm just wondering, like, you know, as a young person around that time, putting out all these records, what was that like for you? I mean, it sounds like it would have been insanely exciting, kind of on a day to day basis.
2: Yeah, it was every day you've got a new new sort of like thing we wouldn't spend more than a week on a record you know you get into sort of like a thing where you get the vocal you know the drums and everything together to fit together then you start to you know make the bass lines and stuff like blah 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 sometimes they'd happen in, in two days you know you, you, you're just you done so then you do a dub and knock it out others it's, it'd be a week but it was it was good fun but I mean for us the big distraction was the market outside because I had a window that overlooked the market and you've got a constant stream of people walking up and down this market, and all the traders as well, who are also, like these guys in the market, they've got to stand there all day selling a hand of bananas for a quid, and they are bored out of their minds, you know, so they want fun, they want fun, they want something, they want, the slightest distraction for them is brilliant. So they, we were like, we got our record shop there and we're up for taking the piss. So we would have like catapults, we buy a box of grapes in the morning, go upstairs with a catapult, and I was fucking lethal. You could, I could take a bag of crisps out of someone's hand with a grape from a third floor window on the other side of the street. So you get <laughs> it without <laughs> moving as well. If they were walking, I could take it out of their hand. <laughs> <laughs> and then so like Christmas would come and the guy across the across the way would set up his stall and he'd have plastic little waving Santa men that would wiggle and make a little song 50 of them along this stall right so then you'd move up ammo you'd get a lychee right it was a little bit more weighty with a cr- oh yeah yeah it. that's gonna pack so a punch you you yeah. got so you take the first one out, bang, off the side. And he's like, oh, through that. Like, not knowing where you are. Because <laughs> he's a new guy. The Christmas guys were always the best because they came on the market, they didn't have a clue what was going on. So you take one by one, you take every single one of his Santas out with a lychee. It's fun, it's like, but it, you waste a day. So there was a downside.
0: Maybe one of the slightly lesser known facts about this area is uh, you guys were the producers behind Daniel Beddingfield's Got to Get Through This, yep. which obviously went uh, number one in UK. It was nominated for a Grammy as well. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Tell us the story about that record. Like, How did that whole thing come about?
2: Daniel came into the shop. He was like, a, he used to come in the shop. He was from around, from Streatham, I think. So he came to the shop and, uh, I mean, he was a ridiculous talent do you know what i mean it's, it's, and he came in with some ideas and then dean and andy the other guys from D, said look he's got this record we've got to take him seriously because this is amazing sign the record to our record label and basically came in and said you know let's make the record and we made the record and it went out and started to get played and it was just ridiculous I mean, back in the day, those things were—it was mad—the money that people would spend on records because you could sell units. You know, this was just before everything went before MP3s and stuff like that. You know, so you'd have to go and buy a single.
0: Yeah, sort of in the last wave of that was of it, the physical. Yeah, yeah, that was it.
2: Yeah. You know, and it went to number one, and you're just like, what the hell? You know, how
0: how has that happened? I mean what was your response to that like you know again you're in sort of like a youthful period and you've got this like hit record on on your hands like yeah yeah but what was that like for you
2: oh it's mad because you you know suddenly you have to get yourself a lawyer and you have to start talking to people who know what they're doing you know and stuff like this and then you go and shop it for a record deal and I think it went for like half a million quid in the end for the single you're 21 years old and you're thinking hang on a minute this has gone for number 1 i think it was 11 countries it went to you might be wrong there i might have made that ex- more exaggerated over the, as the years went on but it was huge so you're thinking 21 years old right which porsche am i going to get do you know what i mean <laughs> and at the time it was like i was spending money like fucking nuts. I, every time we go out anywhere to anything I would buy everyone all their drinks. I would buy all the drugs because I thought I had this huge amount of money coming, you know? So you just didn't care. You just go fucking crazy. And then you get the phone call. That's not going to happen anymore because the record company's gone bankrupt.
0: Wait, so you were spending the money you didn't already <laughs> yeah, have yeah.
2: in advance of this fat check that was yeah, going to yeah, come yeah, through yeah. and then. Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to get one penny in the pound, yeah.
0: And um, how did you dig yourself out of that one?
2: Oh, whatever. You know, I've done it a few times in my life. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, Any others you care to mention?
2: Oh, no, it's happened loads of times. You know, every time you think you're up, there's always something that, you know, that you go, oh, shit. (laughs) But you just keep, you know, as long as you can just um, keep doing what you do and if you're having fun and you're getting away with it and you've got a roof over your head you know, and still no one's gone hang on a minute you can't be doing this <laughs> you're sure. laughing
0: um, I mean was it the case that that particular deal collapsed and then it just happened elsewhere was it that kind of situation yeah I mean that particular
2: deal collapsed and then just something else happens that one we were I was in you know a little bit of a pickle and then a friend of ours Ross Allen who worked for Domino said, Um, here I've got a uh, do, do you know do you, you don't want to do a Mary J. Blige remix, do you? And we were like, Yeah, like, yeah, all right, yeah, go on, give me what, what sort of music do you want, Garage or or, or, or yeah, no, 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 do it like I don't know, like something like Daft Punk <laughs> meets Garage meets uh, something didn't understand at all what he was going on about. We did this Mary J. Blige remix and it was. Another one that just went bang. It just sort of like suddenly this record that we were just sort of like, oh, go on, do it. Because it will like, give it a go. It wasn't a lot of money. And we were like, you know, we'll just just do it. And it suddenly, that was a hit. And then got nominated for a Grammy again. And as soon as that happens, it went mental. So you had every record company in the world just see oh what remixes have gone on this year Uh, okay Moto Blanco never heard them before but they've been nominated for a Grammy get them to do uh, one for us and we had a line of people queuing up to do remixes (laughs) <laughs> it was, like, ridiculous. So we had to do one a week. It was regimented.
0: Okay, so you'd already been, like, making a bit of house at that point, yep. right, in in that sort of particular style. So it wasn't like a, you know, a, no, a new no, thing. No, like no, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We, we'd done, um, Danny and I did Mickey Moto and Bobby Blanco, which is 3 a.m. 3
0: a.m., yeah, I, which I bought on, that, yeah. Yeah, which
2: is on um, Defected. But we'd done some other 12s as well. I did a Mickey Moto 12. Danny had done... Bobby Blanco 12s, which were, like, phenomenal, you know. He's got an ear for a disco sample that is just, he's cracking, you know what I mean? So we'd done that, and then sort of that's why he got us to do the remix, the Mary Jo Blige one. But then suddenly you've got every record company in the world want their record... But with that record, you know, so we had to do do these mixes, and they were great fun. You know, what I mean, we're working with pop vocals and 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 pop singers, you know, and it was hilarious because you'd get all the raw files. They'd send you all the files, every single one, so you could hear. They'd just go, "Oh, can't be bothered. Just send them the whole thing." So you get this breakdown of 140 takes of let's just a pop star right so you can hear all the takes and it was blinding so
0: yeah i mean just for for the listeners it's probably worth taking a step back here and actually you know listening or talking about some of the the artists in question here yeah i mean you've got that wikipedia entry with all of the all the remixes you pulled off adele brandy janet jackson jennifer lopez lady gaga lionel richie mariah carey rihanna yeah that's insane.
2: Yeah, I mean, Danny's done some of those. Okay, since. so since, yeah. but yeah, da- Danny's done the good ones. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's kind of like I wanted to keep moving. You know, and, yeah, and Danny sure. Danny was doing it so well and so so good. You know that it was just like. said we wanted to start that magnetic man thing and he was like it's cool (laughs) you know yeah no no i see i don't actually need you anymore (laughs) okay 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 (laughs) so okay so
0: there was a you know there's a period of time where you were both kind of working on these you're certainly dealing with some of the names i mentioned but then he took the project on
2: well no it was just again i was doing two things at the same time we were doing that together and i was doing the magnetic man thing with Benger and scream at the same time and then it sort of it became more and more that I needed more and more time as that Magnetic Man thing needed. It's like a monster. It starts to take up so much time as it got, you know, bigger and bigger.
0: Yeah, sure. And
2: um, Danny was just like, you know, he was doing great. You know what I mean? It was really firing. So he was
0: like, you know, he just carried on doing them because he was brilliant at it, you know. I just wanted to ask, like, you know, artistically, did you feel like you were just kind of in a different headspace when you're working on a project like that? Does it feel more like, you know, no, commercial, you no, know, let's... It's, no,
2: it's all the same. Feels well, all the same, really. it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're making any type of music. If your head's nodding and you're jumping around... Sure, sure, you, sure. You, it doesn't matter what you're making. Do you know what I mean? If you're doing it and it's solid, and it's whether it's making a pop remix or whether it's doing the Magnetic Man stuff or techno or house or anything, if you're in it and it's it's great fun, then it's it's no, no sweat to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've, no. I've, if you're sitting down and trying to make music and you're not enjoying it there is not a lot of point in sitting there you know
0: so in order to discuss some of the uh, magnetic man stuff we should probably go back and talk about um, big apple just a little bit more yeah. the store and uh, and croydon and the early 2000s is obviously mentioned like frequently as being you know the pivotal environment or you know this like fertile ground for uh, what later became dubstep, and yeah. you know, like elements of of grime, and you know, people talk about this dark garage sound that came yeah. through. So you made the track. It's the Sounds of the Future, right? Yeah. Mentor. That was with Danny as well. That's with Danny as well, yeah. right? And at the time, you had like it was a core of producers around London who were producing in this kind of style. Yeah. So LB or yeah. like I said, buyer Zinc people <coughs> people along these lines. So what I'm interested in is when you guys, you know, around the shop or, you know, as a as a sort of group of producers started noticing that this thing had had kind of shifted enough where you started to consider it as a new sound. You know, even if you hadn't given it a name, you know, it's moving in a direction. It's like, fuck, this is just like something new now. You know, this isn't. Do you know what? It,
2: It was weird. Right. Danny and I were making garage upstairs in the studio. We're making it all day long. Yeah. Benny Hill, who was part of Bill and Ben on Hard House, he was he was making that sort of Bill and Ben stuff, and he was into techno. He was he sort of he taught me a lot actually because when I used to go into another studio when I made records with John Kennedy, which was the Block EP, which is really weird because it's worth so much money on um, Discogs now. It's, How much are we talking? It's ridiculous, <laughs> really. It's mental because it was sort of like a big sort of tech house sort of record it used to be played at Wiggle that sort of scene. Okay, but we went in to do this tracks and Benny Hill was in the studio and he would sort of like look at the desk when I was working and he'd go, why are you boosting that frequency? You know, you should be, there's nothing there. And he taught me a lot of, and I'd be like, yeah, why am I doing that? I was just doing things just because no one's ever taught me and I just yeah, do okay. stuff. So I learned quite a lot off of him. And then he came up to the studio, he was making techno stuff and he come up and said, I wanna make some of this garage. I was like, okay, cool. And he'd go away and garage was sort of like two step. Yeah. But then he had reggae samples and he was writing to sort of like all his kung fu films and stuff like that. And he come back to us with a track that had kung fu sort of like sample in it. And because it was, he was so into his reggae, the snare was on the wrong one. The snare was on the wrong beat. And, and he said, What do you think of this? And I was like, Yes, yeah, so I what? like, No one's going to play it. The snare's on the wrong beat. It's like, It's not, you've got it wrong. That's not Garage. And he was like, Oh, okay. Hatcher was like, That's fucking brilliant. I love it. Can you make me some more? And Hatcher was saying, Look, I want that, but make the bass more like you know this and blow up. So Benny Hill would come back in and start to make these sort of like, you know, these tracks that were, they were like nothing else. You know what I mean? Benga and Scream were in making beats on their PlayStations and coming in every day with a mini disc with a new five new tracks that they'd made the night before to test them out on the system. And, you know, and I think they were picking up a bit of Benny Hill's stuff and. They were still. I mean, Screenworks in the shop, so he was listening to the techno stuff and the and the house stuff and as well. And there was this weird sort of mix, but I, definitely the dub sort of that sound, the very very early dubby sort of sound, that dark stuff
0: was was
2: Benny Hill making Garage
0: wrong. <laughs> so I mean, that's just so often the case, right? Yeah, someone goes for something and gets it wrong, yeah, and yeah, inadvertently yeah. creates something new. Yeah. So your Red EP, for example, yep. was that kind of along those lines? I mean, was that a response to the time and what was going on around you? Or?
2: No, I was making the garage stuff, but I thought, wouldn't it be good to do this garage stuff, but like incorporate some of the techno sounds as well? Right, I mean? okay. To, to make it more, a, a little bit more sort of like, there was that sound going on. It wasn't, I mean, I didn't invent it. Do you know what I mean? It was like the LB was doing stuff and blah, and I thought, yeah but it'd be good if it was a little bit more techno do you know so i made that one with very very techno sounds and and uh but i think that whole sort of thing with the early benger and scream stuff was just another planet do you know what i mean they were coming in and we were laughing at, them at first because these things were crap they were <laughs> these these mini discs with these really bad records and we were like all right you can play it for 30 seconds right so but then, because they were on the phone to each other every single night and, and bouncing stuff backwards and forwards to each other, they were learning so fast, and the curve just went crazy. And then at one point, they were fifteen years old, and John was like, "We've got to sign this stuff. We have to put it out." Hatcher was playing it all the time on his pirate radio station, and he said, "This is this is something, you know." And we didn't sell a lot. It was again, it was like a thousand, you know. Like I think there was only a thousand of red ever made, and then the other Bengal Screen ones, maybe it was like. 1,500, 2,000, something like that. But it was something that we were doing because we only wanted them to be sold in the shop only, just our shop. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we were like, right, make a record that people have to come here to buy.
0: Yeah, okay. Because
2: like it was like pre-internet. Well, the internet was just coming in then. So he was starting to sell things online, but okay. people would buy records online. So you would post them out physically. But make a record that people have to come here to buy, and then they might buy some other stuff. So let's make it our thing. So you got to make the pilgrimage to Croydon to come and get these tunes, which was great. And we had record shops going mental saying, we need some of these records. And for a while we were sort of, nope, very like, nope, you have got to come. And it was <laughs> how stupid. Long, how long were you able to keep that up oh, for? I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't long until everyone was going bananas. So then we did sell some boxes to other people.
0: Was there a particular place or incident or, or story that you can recall where you did think to yourselves collectively oh shit, this is like really becoming a thing now.
2: No, it's, it goes really, it's just a little step every time. You know? Really, really? Until you sort of like, it was later on when we were doing the Magnetic Man stuff and, you, and suddenly it's like, you're used to walking out onto the stage to bigger and bigger crowds and then it's 70,000 people and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah.
0: It... So in in sort of conceiving of the Magnetic Man project, did you guys feel like, that was kind of a next logical step for the sound in a way. It was just the
2: fact that all gigs to do with that sound were just dub plates. Yeah, It, it okay. was go and get a dub plate cut and you know play it. And we were sort of talking about it and it was kind of like, I, I thought, there's very few elements to this music. So you've got the drums, you've got the bass, and you've got a top line. So if each person could fuck around with each one and make it different every time and and move stuff around and then blend each one into each other, you could have something that was like a next level. Do you know what I mean? So that that lead line that you hear coming in on that record that you know is coming in isn't there and it's something else or it's turned upside down. You know what I mean? It keeps it a bit more interesting. So we only meant to do it forward once. That was it. We, were, we put oh, because screen- You had the whole
0: thing with the, with the yeah. sheet, right? And you were kind of keeping your identities. Yeah. Like, because yes, we just concealed. wanted to see
2: whether it would work. And we thought, right, put a screen up. Call it Magnetic Man. We weren't thinking we're going to do this. It was just an experiment to see if this thing would work. And we got three computers.
0: So wh- when you say this thing, you just mean from a technical standpoint? Yeah. Yeah, okay. like,
2: yeah, Get three computers, link them together. <clears throat> Will it work? And we did it once at there. And it did work, but it didn't work for long because if this is a bit technical for you know and someone who doesn't mess around with electronic stuff written into the code of Ableton it only goes up to like 22 minutes or something like that and then, oh, then it, ship. and then it, the link between the three computers drops so we had to have three sets and so you'd play 22 minutes stop then Pokes would say something on the microphone and then you'd load it up quickly <laughs> <laughs> we had one though like it, it stopped in Newcastle. And there's us standing three of us with three laptops on the stage like that and they've all got the Apple sign glowing, you know. And it broke down. It was a wire that fell out. We didn't know it, it vibrated out. A wire had gone out and it took me like I'm standing there like going through everything reboot, 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 do this, do that and nothing. Dead silence from the crowd for 25 minutes and they're Ooh. they're all just looking at us. A few people start to leave and stuff like that. And one one Geordie from the back went, "We ain't man, it should have got fucking PCs. And that everyone pissed themselves laughing. So at that point, you're like, okay, cool. We're like, we can fit, you know, so.
0: How did, I mean, you were talking about it from a technical standpoint, but when did it start, or how did it start to enter into your thinking that this could be something that, like, kind of incorporates you guys' love of pop. And, you know, this might be something that, like, you know, tickles the mainstream or this is going to go out on like a big record label or something.
2: Well, it was odd because it went the wrong way round uh, as, a, as a band does because we started doing that just for an experiment to see if it would work as a bit of a laugh, really. And then Sarah from uh, Ammunition said, listen, I'm in contact with the Arts Council you could go on tour you could you could tour this we could go and do like 10 clubs and that's that was the next time. let's do 10 clubs that was our biggest that was all we thought yeah we're going to do 10 clubs in a row doing yeah, this and so she got us 10 grand so we could hire the bus the driver and a projector and some black cloth which we had, actually looked like a fucking punch and Judy show to start <laughs> off with it was a black box with a slot in it and it was a punch and Judy box but she said we can do this thing we could you could play ten clubs, and that was all we thought. So we were like, and when we played the ten clubs, we were like, "Shit, that was actually all right." Do you know what I mean? Because the people were going mad for it. You turn up somewhere, and it was like sold out. You know, it was this thing. Were you still hiding your identities at no, this point? No, 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 no this no. That, is that out. This job, is out. Yeah, okay. that was that was an end type that went on the radio. We gave him one of the records, and he went, "Here, yeah, this is Bengar Artworkers artwork and scream." <laughs> so ruined the fucking, <laughs> ruined it. Oh, with that's him. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We only want to do 10 shows. And then when you finish the 10, we're like, fucking hell, we could do some more of these. So we haven't got an album or anything like that. Next thing, we're doing festivals. And we did Ross Gilda Festival. And it's like 15,000 people now. And with all the production and stuff like that. And so the video went up online of us playing to 15,000 people, this music that people are like, what the fuck's this? And that's when the record companies came in and said, we want this fucking thing. Let's do a deal. And we're like, well, we haven't made the album yet. And it was old school, like, okay, we'll give you the money to go and make an album. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: When I was reading that like when you were touring the album, you had something like a seven hundred and fifty K thousand pounds lighting yeah. rig yeah. that would have been connected to the record.
2: No, no, no. We didn't buy it it cost 750,000 pounds it's,
0: it's, it's, it's worth it's worth it's, worth. Yeah, I think the, it's, it's still very impressive <laughs>
2: it was yeah it was quite impressive it blinded a lot of people and it was a psh- fucking stupid because i tell you what we could have actually done that show with a strobe light on stage and I could have a nice car at the moment do you know what I mean but we spent every single penny again you're thinking there's going to be loads more of this coming do you know what I mean <laughs> We we spent every fucking penny on the show. And we had, at one point, it was pretty, it got like, you know, spinal tap. It was, we are going to have the biggest, most mental light show in the world. We had Italian designers, like, make this rig that went off of every sound that was being triggered from the computers. Super complicated to each light. I mean, ridiculous. Oh, it looked great. Yeah, it looked great. But it was like, that cost... (laughs) Fucking, because you've got like two or three lorries and you've got 15 people, they all need a bed, they all need breakfast, dinner and lunch and the tour buses and all the managers and then all the, the riggers and it's like every gig, you're like, you know, you see it and you go, we're getting 50 grand for this gig, are we? Yeah, 50 grand, fucking hell. How much have we got left at the end? Well, you've got like 500 quid. <laughs> you've done 45 grand of life. Yeah.
0: How did you guys tackle it when you did signed that deal and you've got this you know record promised and uh, and coming through the pipe and you've got all this interest in it like were you able to sort of seize the momentum and like write quickly you know was it like a, a stress-free process or were you kind of like tearing your hair out
2: actually getting the deal was a bit mental okay the deal was sort of like all of a sudden you, you had a bidding war but which you know is, is a crazy thing in itself because you're suddenly you you're offered like 50 grand, then 100, then 200, then 300 grand, and you're like, oh, what is going on here, you know? We haven't even got a record, we haven't got an album, and people are offering us 300 grand, you know? And it went up and up and up, and and then eventually, I did get an offering from one of the people that was working for the company that went bankrupt, the Daniel Benningfield person. And so um, he put in an offer, and I was like, oh, I'll tell you what, we should really fly to Los Angeles. To see dubstep, you know because you need to know about it, so we did, and uh I said, we need to sleep, you know what I mean, I need to sleep, so we got three first class upper class like super first class a, a day before, which cost twelve and a half thousand pounds each seat, and we went out there, hired the biggest cars, went to the best fucking restaurants and and hotels, went to this gig, I just fucked straight off, right, <laughs> slept all the way there, all the way back, and on the plane, you know. This guy was like, look, we want to talk about the deal. And I said, you know, you don't remember me, do you? (laughs) And yeah, yeah. so we didn't sign with them. But we did sign with Columbia. They said, what do you want to do? And we're like, okay, we want to, you know, we want to go into a a mansion somewhere. Again, fucking stupid. Like, wasted all this money. So we hired this mansion in winter with a heated outdoor pool, hired a huge Range Rover, all the stupid shit. You know, went down there, and we got down to this place. And I went with Ben and Ollie, both lived with their parents at the time. Got down to this place. Uh, I said, like, go shopping. So we found this remote place out it was in Rock opposite uh, Padstow, and we went to the supermarket. And I, I said, we'll split up. You go and get what you want. I will get what I want. Meet back at the tills in like 15 minutes. It's the first shop, so I went and got mints, like herbs you know potatoes vegetables stuff like that milk eggs all bread things like that or stuff like this I swear I've got a picture somewhere of the trolley they turned up with their trolley they had four bottles of coke and the rest of the trolley up to the top with Kit Kats funny hippo fucking sweets like bags of Haribo (laughs) nothing else I was like what are you going to
0: eat and they went (laughs) that
2: fucking serious that
0: was fueling the album yeah
2: and then we sort of tried to start do this album and we were going nowhere because they were going fucking stir crazy because they're used to you know going out every fucking night you know this, this whole thing we're stuck in Cornwall with the three of us in a mansion we went bananas well they went bananas you know what I mean and so the record company came down about, oh man, it must have been like after a month and a half, six weeks, they were like, right, we need to come down and listen to what you've done on the album. <laughs> so they got. See where this is going. Yeah, so you got all the execs, probably 10 of them, and the publisher, everyone, because you've got publishing in advance as well. All of them, big wigs, come down with to see their big investment. We'd made a song that went, <laughs> and it went, ketamine, check. Cocaine, check. Ecstasy, check. Let's party. Right. Seriously. Their faces was like, okay, cool. What what else have we got? We're like, well that's about it for the minute. <laughs> and then we went home to Cordon and finished it. Yeah, Bang, just, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like looking back on the project now, like artistically do you like chalk it up as a success? Like, were the label happy with the results? It was great. We had
2: the guy that signed it, Mike Smith, at Columbia was just like, this is great. And he was old school. He was the last of, you know, the sort of like the old school. And he was brilliant. He was just like, yeah, make us this record. Do you know what I mean? Go and do what you do. And we really, all three of us, me, Benga, and Scream, love songs. You know, we love like, most of the garage records we listened to were all songs and stuff like that. And we thought having the someone say to you, for the first time you can say, can we have John Legend? And they're like, yep here you go give us a backing track we'll give it to john legend and we g- g- give you a song back fucking hell so it's it's a new thing again it's just like a new thing let's do it let's let's make pop songs you know let's like not pop songs but let's make songs that are actual songs that you can sing along with you know what i mean it's like a new thing i, th- I think it was great you know all three of us love it we, we still stand by it you know it's because it's it was something that was It had been done. We'd been making all the dark stuff. We'd done all that. We'd we'd done that. This was the next step. This was something, you know, mad. It's another weird thing you've never
0: done, you know. Did you feel like your peers had kind of given you like not not like a pass but like obviously with you guys being so connected to like the very earliest days was there a sense of like well if anybody's going to take this to the charts like these guys just go for it
2: we didn't actually think it was we didn't think it was chart stuff we didn't really no no, no, no. like we were just making these songs yeah and we thought it was quite you know but with that machine behind you they're going to be hits because they're gonna put it in people's faces, they're gonna get it playlisted, they're gonna get it on, you know, everywhere. So I Need Air, which when we first played it out at DMZ, tore the roof off the place. Do you know what I mean? And like You'd play it in the middle of a set of that stuff and it would fuck up
0: a club. Yeah, sure, a space, a night of darkness. Yeah, yeah, but then
2: you listen to it out of context on Radio One 30 times a day, of course, it's going to sound like, a, you know, like another one of those pop songs. At the time, it really was like, fuck, that's a tune. You know, I mean, it lit up clubs.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd argue now if you heard it on the radio, it would still sound like quite a bit different to, you know, everything around it.
2: It does, but it wasn't meant to be that. Yeah, it's weird. Your perspective changes of a record when you hear it. Yeah. A hundred times. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird
0: kind of thing. Just sort of creatively speaking, is that like a niche that you still want to scratch some more? Like, would you want to write more songs in the future? Like, will you do more Magnetic Man stuff, do you think? I, I don't know. It's just like, oh, I've never had a plan.
2: You, yeah, like sure. None of us sort of group have really. There's never been like a, a thing. And I couldn't tell you. There might be something might happen tomorrow someone might say hey do you want to do this or whatever (laughs) and i'll be going in a different direction i don't know
0: let's change gears let's talk about ibiza a little bit you're doing a regular residency right yeah you're at at pikes yeah i'd seen it you described it in glowing terms you would said it was like the best club in the world or one of the best clubs in the world what is it about that place i mean i I don't know that it's like necessarily on the radar of everyone who goes to ibiza you know everybody's like space amnesia blah 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 should we keep it that way you want to just end it end it there. Should
2: we keep, just you know, see what I'm saying?
0: But all right, how many people are you getting through the door usually for one of these things?
2: Uh, maybe over the night, 600 or something. Okay, but so yeah, on, still. On the dance
0: floor, 150 people. Okay. Yeah. So what is it about the place for you? It's just magical. Yeah, okay. It's like
2: Tony Pike. He was a, a model he was a sailor first of all actually he was a sailor on shore leave walking through manhattan and someone said hey are you a model and he was like "No, nah, mate i'm a sailor and he said well you're a model now come with me signed him up became the chesterfield man which is like the marlborough man but for chesterfield cigarettes and um he was suddenly hanging out with all famous because he was on every billboard in america he's hanging out at all the big parties and all these you know amazing people all these amazing parties he thought i need a place for these people to go so he went to ibiza when it was a fishing town and bought an old farmhouse and built it with his hands and within a you know over the it took him years and years to build but as he was building it it was sort of like one point you'd have grace jones you'd have wham you'd have freddie mercury you'd have genesis you'd have it like they all there and freddie mercury sort of checked in there and said. I want this room forever. And they were like, well, how, how long? You no, know, I'll just keep taking the money out of my bank. Moved his record player and his clothes over there. So every time he finished, cl- he'd just go straight there. And then he'd have parties that was in that room, in his bedroom, that would start on a Monday and they'd end on a Thursday or a Friday. And that was just like, the, and it's never lost it. So when he died, they were like, well, we can't turn it back into a hotel room. It has to stay as Freddie's place, you know? So it is Freddie's. so you're in there you're in freddie mercury's bedroom and it's uh absolutely
0: the best place i mean what's there. the how would you describe the feeling of the place
2: it's an age group from there could be people in there at 20 there could be people on the dance floor that are 60. there is something that's just run through they you can be put on the guest list you can t- you know do them an email they put you on the guest list but if you don't look like you're going to fit in with the rest of the people there you're not getting in so there is a everyone there is cool Everyone is on a certain, you know, wavelength. Everyone will talk to everyone else. There's not one person you could say, Hi, how are you? Do you know what I mean? It's like and it's not like a nightclub. To be able to play there. I mean, I went there years ago and just fell in love with it. And to be able to do sort of like six weeks there is is I say amazing, it's like I do the Saturday nights, every Saturday night. And I finished playing there, and I, I walk around like, oh, I did really well there, I, fucking, I smashed that, do you know what I mean? I really did well, I'm really happy with that. And then Harvey does the Monday. So you go in, and you're like, why the fuck am I doing this? And I want to throw all my records away. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point? But then it takes me a few days in the sun and thinking about it, and then I can go back. I no, it wasn't so bad. It <laughs> was you know, so yeah. bad, I might as well go back Saturday, you know? <laughs>
0: What do you think about b for in general?
2: I love the place, it's great. You've been
0: going a long time?
2: Must be 20, 22 years ago I went there first time. And I uh, used to, you know, bombing around on mopeds, you know, dropping bottles of vodka over the club wall so that we could go in there and pick them up in the bushes <laughs> at night. Do you know it's, that? A good, it's a good one, on yeah, just, yeah. Just, yeah. Being a, just being a, a, a scallywag, so. You know, you drive through San An and you see all those people, those, you know, and a lot of people are a bit kind of can be snooty about that sort of crowd. And I'm like, that was me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. You, yeah. You, you can't, you know. But a lot of the big, big clubs, I don't know, they've got a bit m- mental now. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit uh, for me sort of to go and have a good dance at somewhere. Space was great, you know, DC 10, but no one's making any, taking any risks for me. It's okay. like, uh, but then again, I can go and watch Villa Lobos do his thing at cocoon and you're just like open mouthed that how good this is and how many people are into it do you know what i mean it's like, yeah 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 that's so. Like this is some really
0: me, weird shit this and is, there is, is a lot fucking, of pe- yeah this is
2: art right and you've got a crowd who are going along with it where it can't imagine sort of like that happening anywhere else do you know what i mean it's weird
0: you should probably uh, tell us about the party concept how it came about so it's arts house yeah
2: Yeah. we were sort of uh i like twitter so we were all i'm constantly messing around there and it was sort of started to become a bit like this is like a few years ago every tweet suddenly became come to my party come to this party i'm playing here i'm playing here i'm playing here i'm playing here and it was like my feed because i follow a lot of djs and stuff like that was a lot of that so i thought fuck this, like, turn it around and say, look, we'll have a party at your house. We'll come to you. So tweet me if you want a party at your house. And we did, and someone, we picked someone, went round their terraced house, round the back of the East End, on a Wednesday, and we took Scream, Teed, Route 94, took a load of speakers, lasers, smoke machines, a bar, the whole fucking thing. Put a gazebo up in the back garden. It was like, they invited all their friends, it was a proper party until about two o'clock in the morning when the neighbour knocked on the door and said, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, it's, it's Tuesday. <laughs> so we we shut it down. And then Andy Payton said, look, you should do this, you know. You should do an arts house, like, same sort of thing. You can have the nest, do you know what yeah. I mean? Do it at the nest. So we did, and we made the club into a front room by putting up wallpaper and light bulbs and lampshades and all that sort of stuff. And it just sort of went on from there and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and now we're doing one at uh, Electric in Brixton for like 1,700 people at Christmas
0: did you manage to flog any of those 800 quid tickets and the final release
2: not yet but it's not the final release so oh it hasn't reached no, the final no, it release hasn't, yet you no
0: know. <laughs> you should probably uh, mention what we're referring to
2: Oh, uh, it's. I looked at ticket prices and stuff like that and if you want to go out on a night out all my parties will be like a fiver if you get in there quick you can get a ticket for a fiver so, I think that's reasonable. It's five quid, you're going out, and you're still going to spend money on drink and stuff like that. But £28 tickets and things like that to go out to a club is that's a kick before you even got out the door. Sure. Like, we do a load at a fiver, then we do a smaller amount at a tenner, then some at 15, and then <laughs> the last one's a £785.20p <laughs> plus booking fee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the booking fee like £40, £76? No, £76, well? pounds, yeah. 76 yeah. okay. <laughs> So you sort of um, mentioned you love a Twitter there, and this you know kind of how the art side thing came about. Is it something that you've always been a bit of a natural at? Would you say? Well, you know, were there any like teething problems? Did you just like take to it when, the, or do you take to it when these platforms come through?
2: I think I, I do it wrong when I first started doing it. People were telling me and saying, "Oh no, you can't, you can't do that." And I was I started on Facebook recently. Someone said you should do Facebook, and I was like, "Oh god." That means seeing all your friends in that, doesn't it? From That you don't want to see from in the past. And they yeah, were like, no, okay. no, no. You set up a page, you do this thing. And I was like, so I started to do this past. And they're like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. It's meant to be about what gig you're doing. I'm like, fuck off. <laughs> I'll just put a video up care for. about that. <laughs> yeah, so if I see something funny, I'll put it on there. Or if I've got a gig coming up, I will do uh, a come to my party. But I will steer clear of Totally Ecstatic to announce uh, that I'll be... <laughs>
0: That is funny because it seems to me like there are a certain number of artists out there for whom social media is, like, the most stressful thing ever, right? Yeah, right. They don't feel natural doing it. They're under, like, a lot of pressure from agents and promoters to, like, be this person. Right. Is this, like... Conversations that you're having among your peers, like the DJs talk about this a lot. Has it become a big thing in the community? No, I don't. You wouldn't say so.
2: No, I don't. For me, it's just if I see something funny, I'll put it up there. Do you know what I mean? Just because it's more like put it up there because it's easier to do that than to text five of my mates with a video.
0: Sure. Yeah, (laughs) that's
2: that's what it's about. So I'm just like, I'll put it on there because it's easier for them to see. And then everyone else can see it as well. So it's, you know,
0: two birds with one stone. sort of thing. So in reading like interviews to prepare for this, there seemed to be like a recurring theme where you're you're kind of saying a lot of things along the lines of, I just have to mix it up. You know, I have to do something different. And we've been talking a lot about these different, like, musical left turns you've been taking, talking about wacky party concepts, talking about getting social media wrong. But at its core, what you do is, like, fairly simple, I'd say. You know, you make music, like, lots of it for the club, and you play that music in the club or on the radio. So I guess what I'm wondering at this point, as someone who's been, like, doing this for a long time, do you feel as though there are enough, like different permutations of this very simple format to kind of keep you interested for the next i don't know 10 years or something
2: i mean for, for me it's only just taking off just getting going I kind mean,
0: of as artwork yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah I, I, see. it
2: was sort of after the magnetic man thing it was sort of very very difficult for me to sort of say people didn't know what i did before it was pre-internet it was a lot of it was like you no one knew who i was and then i did that and it was like oh artworks the other bloke who was with benguin scream do you know what i mean so they didn't know that i did this stuff before did that
0: bother you at all no, though no, sure. no. no no
2: but what was difficult was sort of saying to people listen i, I actually i used to make techno stuff and i really like disco as well and i can play it didn't have a fucking like I a right n- real bad time do you know what i mean saying to people yeah but i can do it and they're like well what am i going to book you as like artwork playing disco the bloke from magnetic man who the bloke in the middle from magnetic man playing a disco set yeah that's really going to draw people in isn't it you know so i couldn't get a gig i was fucked and then andy payton he sort of said why don't you do all night upstairs in XoYo?" and he gave me the room to say go on then show people what you can do and i did that four or five times and that was like the big break the big sort of like the bit that got me going again do you know what i mean Mm.
0: so i mean it's interesting because you're gonna you know in in doing this you have this like very ask backwards arc in a way yeah because people could just discover you and take you on exactly the terms they find you now yeah and then in getting into you as an artist like oh shit, yeah magnetic man and then garage and then techno
2: yeah i get that all the time though really I, yeah I get people that i've known for quite a while come up to me and go i didn't know you were involved in that you know yeah you know, it's just you know, really really strange you know Weird things like uh, Mr. G at the weekend. He was. We were in Scotland and known him for ages. And we were talk. You know, we talked to each other and know each other quite well. And then somebody else told him that I'd done the Magnetic Man thing. He was like, "Fuck off!" <laughs> so the, the connections aren't, just it, yeah. aren't made. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, But I think that's all right. I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm really happy that it's just I'm I can do these parties that I can play what I want. It doesn't matter. People will come along and they know it's going to be a good good fun. Do you know what I mean? So I can might be. Disco, might be techno, might be in it, It doesn't matter. You know, I might have a guest, I might not. So for me, it's just getting started. It's a really strange feeling, but I'm only just getting started. So all the the stuff, it's really odd. Maybe it's because I've got a short memory.
0: (laughs) Are you still partying hard when you party? When, you know, when you're doing your parties, do you still like to, you know, get down do you still like to you know let it hang out would you say yeah I, I,
2: well, I think i'll always party i live to do that i live to you know hang out and talk bullshit do you know what i mean it's like it's, it's great i mean I've, I've been curbed recently because my missus was like <laughs> hey, look, you you don't actually need to uh stay out that late do you know what i mean you could have come home so many hours earlier and you know because. She works, you know, she, and, and it's, there is a thing where you go, yeah, fuck, that, that was a bit silly. Do you know what I mean? So I love to party, but maybe I won't, you know, stay for three days like I did <laughs> a few years ago.
0: You're just one and a half. Yeah. Or yeah, 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 fair enough. Tell us about what you've got coming up. I'd heard that there was a single on Numbers that was going to come out this year. Is that potentially still the case?
2: We're just doing a little bit of dancing around a sample clearance.
0: Okay. Yeah. Are you at liberty to say uh, which sample is it in question? It's it's a sample that's
2: about. I, am, I actually. Because I had to send it to the record company, it's a sample that is actually 1.1 seconds long. <laughs> so everyone keeps saying to me, when are you putting this record out, man? When are you put?" This? And it's. I, I can't put a record out because it's got a sample in it. You know what I mean? So we're. we're but the, the lovely people that are clearing it are just working as hard as they can. And I'm sure that soon we'll. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have something to put on the shelf.
0: I mean, you're saying you don't tend to make plans, but, you know, do you have anything in particular that you would want to achieve, even if it's just, like, get more music out in the next 12 months or something? I can't commit to that. Yeah? No. It'll just come back to to haunt you, I suppose, yeah. No, I mean, in the, the, the another also interview. I've
2: been building a house, actually physically building a house. I've been there for a year, like, doing that. Not on my own. I've got builders who actually know what they're doing, but I'm actually there, like helping carry bits of wood and stuff like that it does take up all of your time because this thing that you think was going to be three months and you're going to paint some floorboards suddenly turns into uh, two years and you've you were left with a front wall and a back wall it's different you know what i mean so that's taken over a lot of my time
0: yeah just for the tape um you'd received a setback when uh, when you called the tile supplier before we came on yeah. air and uh, <laughs> saying how that's potentially pushed back the uh, the flooring for God knows how many weeks.
2: Yeah. But that's every day. Every day you go to order something. And this is boring, isn't it? But you need a bit no, of steel. No, we, we want to hear bit, about your You tiles. need a bit of steel that goes in the floor so that he can lay the floor so that then that wall can go on that thing. And you're like, cool. When's the steel coming? Thursday. So Thursday... Laurie turns up, it's got the wrong size bit of steel on it. And you're like, this is the wrong size bit of steel. It won't fit in the hole. It's too short. It's yeah. Oh, OK, well, we'll send it back. OK, well, when will the next bit be ready? Uh Well, it would be two weeks to cut that now and get it painted and brought Blah blower. Blah, blah. So it's two weeks that that guy can't put the floor on, so the next guy can't put the wall on. And it's like every day <laughs> for years. <laughs>
0: What's it going to be like that first evening when you sit down in your completed house? Well, thing? that's tonight. Oh, that's tonight, yeah. really? And we haven't got any bathrooms or a kitchen. <laughs> I'm not fucking about. It's just seriously.
2: I'm absolutely serious. We Our lease has run out on the flat we were renting. So, I mean, we're not that far off. So we were, <laughs> we were like, look, don't get another one. We're just like, it will be ready soon. Yeah, yeah it, sure. We've been in, like staying on people's sofas and stuff like that. And then tonight, I've got one room now that we got ready so we're going to go and stay in there tonight and yeah we're staying in a room of the house so there we go
1: well
0: listen man thank you thank you very much it's been great no it's great
1: (laughs) Yet, 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 yet